0: Yeah, where we uh, left off with our hero last week, things were really, really, really bad. David made a colossal, colossal mistake. Um, in fact, if th- you're just joining us, uh, we're in the middle of a series on the life of David. And when we think about David, we think King David. But before David was a king, he was just a guy. And last week, we looked at a story where, again, he made a terrible, terrible, terrible decision. The problem with terrible decisions is they take us down. And as we go down, oftentimes we make things even worse. And so in today's episode, we find David right on the right on the heels of this terrible, terrible decision that left him in a terrible, terrible place. He is on the verge of making another horrible decision that's gonna make things even worse because that's generally what we do when we're on a downward spiral. But fortunately for David, at the last minute, as we're gonna see, when I say last minute, I mean at the very last minute, he is saved by a woman. Many men have been saved by women at the very last minute. Isn't that right, guys? Yeah, aren't we grateful? But before we get to that, there's this. The golden rule. The golden rule. Familiar with the golden rule? The golden rule is great. The golden rule goes like this. Do unto others as you would have others... Do unto you, yeah, we all kind of know that. In fact, for some of you, 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 have, you grew up with that. You didn't know that it was like a Bible thing, but yeah, it's like a Bible thing. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And the golden rule, the golden rule is great until you are mistreated by others. And once you're mistreated by others or once I'm mistreated by others, then we wanna change the golden rule into a different rule. The rule would go like this. Do unto others as others have done unto you, Right? And in the moment when people have mistreated you or mistreated someone you love, but specifically when they've mistreated you, it actually feels right to treat them in like kind, right? It actually feels natural. There's something that just seems like it is the right thing to do. It is the just thing to do that when you've mistreated, you mistreat people the way they've mistreated you or you treat people the way that they've treated you. And then there's this very complicated thing that was almost impossible to see in the mirror. But if this is you, I promise you, somebody else can see, that, this, see this. And that's when you've been mistreated by someone that you can't mistreat, so you mistreat someone else. Or you've been mistreated in an environment and you can't get back at that environment so you find another environment where you can kind of get all powered up and mistreat people in a different environment so that your anger or what's going on inside of you because of your mistreatment, it gets telegraphed not back to the people or the environment where you've been mistreated, but you take it somewhere else and you mistreat other people and they look at you like, why are you treating me this way? Because the truth is when we feel powerless in one relationship or environment, we oftentimes compensate And another, right? I'll take it out on you because I can't take it out on him. I can't take it out on her. I can't take it out on them. So then we have this really weird dynamic where we do unto others as someone else has done Unto you, And then things are so complicated, you can't ever get everything back in the box. Now, there's a, there's a problem with this whole approach to life, and you're very smart, so you, you understand this, and you probably know where we're going with this. The, the problem with getting back at people, or paying people back in like kind, or to, to use the vernacular that we normally use, the problem with getting even, the problem with getting even is that it makes you even, and it makes you even with someone you don't even like, Why would you want to be even with someone that you think you're better than? Why would you want to be even? Why would I want to be even with someone that I think I'm already ahead of? Why would you want to be like the person that you don't like? Because when you get even, you're acting like the person you don't like. I'm acting like the person I don't even like. And that brings us to part three in our series on the life Of David. Now, a real quick catch up. This story takes place about a thousand years BC, about three thousand years ago. There is so much extraordinary detail. I'm having to skim through so much of the story, so many details. I would encourage you to go back and read this for yourself. It's found in the Old Testament. Um, again, about a thousand years BC, David steps onto the scenes at the pages of history as a, as a warrior, a giant killer. He was 15 years old when he killed Goliath. He immediately becomes a folk hero. He becomes the most popular, well-known person in the nation of Israel and ancient Israel. And then something horrible happens as we saw last week. He becomes a fugitive, because King Saul is very jealous of David, and David has married one of his daughters, David is best friends with his son, and Saul sees um, David as a threat, and so he runs Saul out, and David becomes a fugitive. And today's story, we pick up with David in his fugitive years, surrounded by his merry men, living off the land, trying to stay out of trouble, trying to stay away from the Philistines, but at the same time, not feeling welcome in his own country, and here's where the story Begins, a certain man in Maon who had property there in Carmel was very wealthy. And he had a 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. And when we read that, we think that is a, we don't know what that means, but for the people in ancient times, if they heard this, they would say, wow, that dude is wealthy, okay? He's so a super wealthy guy. And his name, his name in the south, we would say Nabal or Nabal, you know, with a kind of a nasally thing, but actually his name was Nabal. So we're gonna try to call him Nabal, but I may call him Nabal because I grew up calling him Nabal because I'm from the south. Anyway, his name was Nabal. Story continues, and his wife's name, much easier, was Abigail. And she was an intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband, Nabal, was surly and mean in his dealings. In other words, he was actually heavy. He was harsh. He was a pain. He was just, nobody liked this guy. In fact, his name actually means fool. And as it turns out in this story, he was his name. He was a fool. Story continues. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent 10 young men and said to them, go up um, to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Now let me stop and say something about shearing sheep real quick. In the season when um, herdsmen or people who were shepherds or had lots of flocks, lots of sheep, when they sheared their sheep, this was like an annual paycheck. This was like an annual financial statement. This is when a person with sheep found out how wealthy they really were. And Nabal is about to find out that he's even wealthier than he thought he would be. So this was generally a very festive time because the owner is feeling generous, the owner is feeling wealthy. They've come to the end of a season and it's, you know, basically they're all getting a big paycheck, He says, go to him and say long life to you, good health to you and to your household and good health to all that is yours. So David sends his men uh, to, to Nabal with this message to say, hey, basically, hey, things are going well. Things have been going well for you and you just got richer and you're in a good mood. Now I hear, they're gonna say to him, now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. David knew that. When your shepherds, and now this is the message again that David has sent Nabal. He said, when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. So essentially what David was saying through the messengers that he sent was that basically if you have a prophet, part of the reason that you have a prophet is due to the protection of our men throughout the year. Because our men were you know, in the wilderness where your sheep were and your shepherds were. And at any point, they could have stolen sheep from you, but they didn't. So consequently, there's a sense in which we kind of protected your shepherds and we didn't steal anything. He goes on. He says, ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, would you be favorable toward my men since we come at a festive time? And then he makes the ask. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. In other words, since we were good to you, would you be good to us? Since we were kind to you, would you be kind to to us since we didn't steal from you would you be willing to share with us knowing that the whole time during this whole season our men or my men david would say could have taken anything they wanted any time they wanted and there would be nothing you could do about it but we chose not to when david's men arrived they gave nabal this message in david's name and then they waited and of answered david 's men, who is this David? who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. in other words, I know who you 're talking about. I know who sent you, this David guy i mean he 's just a rogue he 's an outlaw he 's a fugitive he 's out of favor with the king, and besides that i didn 't ask for his help i didn 't ask for his protection, and i don 't owe him, and i don 't owe you anything and he continues. Why, why should I take my bread and my water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and they went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word, at which point the soundtrack would change to something a little bit ominous. And David said to his men, strap on your sword. And they did, and David strapped on his as well. Now, did you know, you may know this, and we'll get back to the story in a second, did you know that self-control is actually like a muscle and you can wear it out? Did you know that? It's true, it's true, and so is patience. All these virtues, they're light muscles. You, you have to exercise and you have to find a rhythm in life where you bear down and you work real hard, and you exercise self-control, then you gotta go relax and find something that's fun to do. There's just the rhythm in life. But eventually, ultimately, if you don't have a good rhythm, you can wear this stuff out. So the best that we can tell from this story, David's self-control muscle is worn out. His patience is worn out. And part of it may be, again, we're kind of reading into the story, kind of reading between the lines. He's been on the run now for several years. He's having to live off the land when he should be living at home or living in a palace or you know perhaps even be the king by now. I mean, he has tried to do the right thing and then when he did the wrong thing, he repented. He's trying not to side with the enemies of Israel, but at the same time, Israel itself won't embrace him as a son It won't embrace him as the hero that he is and he's just tired and he's worn out. And this is, in some way, this is kind of like the last straw and maybe, as we mentioned earlier, maybe this is a case where his frustration is getting telegraphed towards somebody that doesn't perhaps deserve you know the, the wrath that he's about to unleash. But there's, there's just so much pent up stuff. This is the last straw. So he says, guys, strap on your sword. I'm strapping on my sword. In, in our world, we, you've heard this before, that hurt people hurt people. So if you've been hurt in the past by somebody, then you may go hurt somebody that didn't hurt you because hurt people hurt people. Perhaps this is an example of hunted people hunt people, okay? Because David is being hunted by King Saul and King Saul's army. And now David's going to go hunt somebody that he feels like has been, you know, unkind or unfair to him. And the cool thing we find out in, in this text a little bit later on, as David straps on his sword and as he begins the journey to find a ball and to pay him back, you know, for this, this unkindness or this injustice, as he considers it, he begins to do what all of us do. He begins to, in his mind, justify what he's about to do. He starts, he begins having that imaginary conversation, kind of building up a head of steam because again, he's really not sure this is the thing to do. Like oftentimes, we're really not sure that what we're about to do is the thing we ought to do. But we talk to ourselves, don't we? And we talk ourselves into this. And in just a minute in the text, we actually kind of get an insight into what David is telling himself as he moves in this horrible direction. Now, fortunately, there are other characters in the story. The story continues. One of the servants, one of the servants, and this is one of the servants of Nabal, one of the servants of Nabal told Abigail, Nabal's wife, that David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, and he hurled insults at them. So this servant was there and saw what happened. The servants, uh, David's men came. They were super kind. They were super polite. They said, hey, if you got a little extra, could you share it with us? And so this servant saw this exchange. Yet these men... Were very good to us, and so now this servant of Abigail says, "Look here, what what the men of David said—it was absolutely true. These men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields, where we were very vulnerable, the whole time we were out in the fields, nothing went missing. In fact, night and day, night and day, they were like a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep." near them. It's as if David sent his men to protect our herdsmen, to protect our herds, and to protect us from other robbers, from animals, or just and the fact that they just didn't steal anything from us is quite amazing. And then the servant says to Abigail, now think it over and see what you can do, (laughs) because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that nobody can talk to him. And then the text tells us that Abigail acted Quickly. She took, text tells us, all this detail is so fascinating. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five measures of roasted grain, which was like 60 pounds, um, 100 uh, cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys with servants. And then she told those servants, go on ahead and I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal, smart woman. The text continues. All this detail, all this drama. You should read the Bible. At least you should read. I mean, isn't this fascinating? Okay, story goes on. as she, As she came riding, as she came riding her donkey into a. This is and get a picture of this. Okay, so there's this ravine. Um, David and his men are snaking their way down into the ravine because they're going down into this fertile valley where the sheep shearing's going on. Okay, and she came riding her, her donkey uh, into a mountain ravine. There were David and his men descending toward her. So she sees this snake of his men, and they are armored up, and they are all ready to go, and they are headed toward her village where all of this is taking place. And and when she got there, she met them. Now, the the cool thing, this is where the story tells us what David's thinking, okay? Because he's had kind of this long journey, and he is building up ahead of steam because he is about to butcher some innocent people. He's about to butcher people he's never met. He's about to let loose this rage that's been building up in him, perhaps all these years as he's run from King Saul. The text tells us this, that David had just said out loud, he's kind of talking out loud to his men. David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. And what has he done? How has he responded to my goodness? And he has repaid me. He has paid me back evil for good. So he is, I mean, he's, he's getting ready. He's getting, getting these guys ready. This is, you know what? I know it's gonna be tough, but these people deserve what we're about to do because of what their master did to us. Now, this next part is so rich. I mean, it is so rich. So I'm gonna kind of walk you through it slowly because this is the kind of thing that if you are reading uh, the Old Testament on your own, you may kind of zip through this quickly, but this is so rich, so follow this. When Abigail, Nabal's wife, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and she bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Now, this is very strange. She is the wife of a wealthy man. David is an outlaw, he's a fugitive, he's a rogue, he, he is, he's a dangerous person to associate with. It's just a matter of time before the king's men catch up with David, execute him, and no one will ever speak his name again. And here is this very wealthy woman married to this very influential person, and she bows down to David, and this totally catches David off guard. And what she begins to do is she begins to treat David as if he is already the man that she hopes he will be. She begins to treat him as if she, if he has already become the man that she hopes he will become. Now, ladies, you need to take note of this, okay? This works on us even when we know what you are doing. I'm serious. I mean, we are just, you can just tell us, okay, I'm going to do that thing, you know, where I make you feel better about yourself than you should. Here it goes. And we will fall for it every time. It's like you're patting us on the head. It's like, you are so strong. I bet you can take those trash cans out to the street with one arm. (laughs) It's like, I I know what you're doing, but do that. You wanna watch? Okay, it's just, it's in us. So Abigail, she's so smart. She, this is so powerful. And, And I'm not talking about manipulating. This is just the dynamic. And I'm telling you, she saved the day. She begins to speak to David's potential. She begins to look past what he's about to do and speaks to his future. And it is so, so powerful. And we get all this detail. So here here's what happened. So she fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. She's not his servant, but she's being subservient. And again, I'm not saying there's a one-to-one correlation. Ladies, please don't say, well, Andy told us we're supposed to bow down in front. No, no, I'm not saying that, okay? This is a culture where this made sense. In our culture, this would just be weird, okay? But there's a parallel somewhere in our culture. So she, um, and hear what your servant has to say. And then she says this, please, please pay no attention to my Lord, that wicked man, my husband, Nabal. He, the ball. he is just like his name and his name means fool and folly goes with him. So let's just pretend like he doesn't exist for a minute. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you. This is like a Jedi mind trick right here. Watch what she does. This is amazing. Since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, you're not going to do what you're planning to do. You're not going to do. Since the Lord has already stopped you from this horrible thing, and she's looking at all these guys and they're they're kind of chomping at the bitch, ready to, you know, to, to do some slaughter. They're all worked up. She's like, Since the Lord has kept you from doing this horrible thing, and then she says, this, May your enemies, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming you, be um uh, harming my Lord be like Nabal. And then she gives him credit for being a better man than he actually is. This is so powerful. Please, she says, please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. And she speaks to his future. David, God is up to something great in you. God has a plan for your life. God has a future for you. And here's why. Because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. You're not a wrongdoer, you're a good man. And then she says this, even though, because she knows Saul is trying to find him. Everybody knows Saul is looking for David. Even though even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, King Saul, the life of my Lord, and then she uses this, this imagery, I'll explain after I read it, this is very powerful. She says, um, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely. The life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. You're like, well, what in the world is she talking about? This is so powerful. She is, this is the language that's used for a wallet or a purse, where you take something valuable, generally money, and you would put it in this wallet or purse and you would wrap cords around it to make sure it's secure and then you would tuck it in your belt. So essentially, here's, here's what she's saying. This, and again, the imagery is so powerful. She says, even though somebody is trying to steal your life, like a thief would steal a coin, even though someone is trying to steal your life, your life is tucked away safely in God's wallet. Your, li- your, your life is buried in the bottom of a woman's purse. <laughs> okay, I gotta just say something about that real quick. Um, Sandra's not here to, to defend herself. See, my wife is like super organized. I mean, she's like the most organized person on the planet. But anytime she says to me, oh, it's in my purse, I just have to take a deep breath because... It's like, so I've got to go in there and find something. I mean, if she's awesome, but I'm telling you, something about me, I don't know if it's all men or just me, like, oh, go find it in my person. It's like, I can't. I'm not mature enough to go fish. I don't know. There's just too much stuff in there, you know. Anyway, so so she uses this. So Abigail uses this incredible imagery. David, your life is so secure. It is bound up and hidden in a God's wallet. It's like it's tucked way down in a purse. No one can take your life from you. You have been safe, and God is saving you for something very specific. But, she says, but the lives of your enemies, now, this is so brilliant. This is the kind of thing you read by too quickly when you read on your own. Now, she takes David back to that moment when he was 15 years old, facing Goliath. Look at the imagery. But the lives of your enemies, he will, as from, let me read again. But the lives of your enemies, he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. It's like, oh, now he's back and it's all about the sling and the slingshot and all of a sudden he's back in that moment when he was completely dependent on God, when he wasn't having to take matters into his own hands and now she speaks to his future. And essentially in this next section, this is so powerful, maybe for some of you this is, this is the point of the message. In this next section, she essentially asked without asking this powerful question that we ask all the time in all of our churches. She asked the question, what story do you wanna tell when this is nothing but a story that you tell? David, what story do you want to tell when this is nothing but a story that you tell? David, when you're looking back at this incident and this is nothing but a story that you tell, what story do you want to tell about this moment in time? Here's what she says. When, because it's gonna happen. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord, every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel. In other words, one day when you are the king, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. I mean, I mean, he's just melting. She goes on and on, he's just melting. It's like, David, one day this is nothing but a story that you tell. And what you do in this moment is gonna be a permanent part of that story. And I'm believing that you're gonna change your mind because you don't wanna tell a story of needless bloodshed, do you? Wow. Suddenly, David comes to his senses. His emotional temperature starts to drop and he sees things in a brand new way. And David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel who has sent you today to meet me. I have been saved by this woman, this intelligent woman. May you, he says to her, may you be blessed for your good judgment. You had good judgment, I didn't, and you didn't keep it to yourself. And sending all that food down here before you got here, that was so smart. Bowed down before me, just threw me totally off guard. I did not know what to do. And then I was putty in your hands, and now I see the way you see. Praise be to God for sending you at such a time as this. For keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. He knew better. And then David Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and I've granted your request. I'm not gonna destroy your husband and I'm not gonna destroy your household. Now, Abigail, she's so smart. Look what happens next. Do you wanna know what happens next? The next part is amazing. Do you wanna know? Okay, I just wanna make sure. When Abigail went to, to, to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king, and he was in high spirits and he was very drunk. So she gets back and he's just having this big party and he's so drunk and she thinks, this probably isn't a good time to tell him what just happened. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. So she waits till he's sober. Then in the morning, and then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died And then David sent word, asking Abigail to become his wife. It's in the text. And Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. And they lived happily ever after the end. Okay. Isn't that great? I made up, of course, the last part. That's not in there, the happily ever after part. The rest of it is. He married her. And just to make sure we put this in proper context, she became one of his wives, Nobody lives happily ever after when you become one of somebody's wives, but I'll let you read the rest of the story later, and we'll talk about a little bit of it later on. So in summary, here's what we have, right? We have three characters. We have three responses, right? We have three characters, three, three, three responses, but only one hero. Okay, Nabal, what does he do? He returns evil for good because David took care of his stuff and he said, hey, I'm not gonna share with you. Um, David was about to return evil for evil, which makes sense. I mean, you know, especially in this day and age in which they lived. But Abigail sees things in a completely different way and through her lens and with her unique perspective, essentially, she returns good for evil. Now, again, Nabal, maniacal, nobody wants to be like him, right? David, predictable. I mean, this is just kind of what we do. But when you read this story, the one thing you can't miss is that Abigail, she's remarkable. And her response is remarkable. And her judgment is remarkable. And her approach is remarkable. I mean, the whole story, she's just remarkable. And there's a sense in which she is way, way, way ahead of her time. You see, during this this time in history, the nation of Israel was in a covenant with God. We call it the Old Covenant. It's contained in the Old Testament. That's where we get the Old Covenant, Old Covenant, Old Testament. And in the Old Covenant, returning evil for evil was actually okay. Okay. I mean, it was eye for an eye, it was tooth for a tooth. I mean, you read the Old Testament law, David's response, I mean, we think it's a bit barbaric and a bit over the top, but it, but you know, his men weren't like, now, nah, David, I don't know, I think you're overreacting. They're like, heck yeah, let's put on our swords and go have some fun. that That was just the world they lived in. Abigail is so, she's way ahead of her time because the new covenant, the new Testament, when Jesus showed up, turned all of that upside down. In fact, here's something kind of cool. Peter... Peter, the apostle Peter, who saw Jesus unjustly arrested, unjustly crucified, Jesus, Peter who saw you know, Jesus who was innocent and sinless, treated like, just treated horribly, and saw Jesus' response, Peter who saw all of that wrote these words to Christians in the first century who were being unjustly treated, and he doesn't go all David on us, he goes all Jesus on us, and he says this, here's what he wrote, he said, do not repay evil with evil. But that's natural, I know. He says, but don't repay evil for evil. I know, but look what they did. I know, but don't repay evil for evil. But they deserve it. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, what about like social media? No, no, not even on social media. Not insult for insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing or good. Repay evil, in other words, whenever you are mistreated, You don't just ignore it and go neutral. You go positive and go blessing. This is what Peter taught. This is what Abigail did. This is that unusual thing. Repay evil with blessing because to this you were called. In other words, if you're a Christian, if Peter's saying, hey, this is what we're called to. We knew we were gonna be mistreated. Come on, they crucified our leader. What did you expect? How did you expect to be treated? He would say to Christians in the first century. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And then, this is the strangest thing of all in some ways, then Peter in the first century quotes David from a thousand years earlier when David is in journal mode and rethinking all of this stuff that he's been through as a kid and as a 20 something year old and as a 30 something year old and he kind of has perspective and he's beginning to see the world in a different way. David journals the following, and it is so New Testament-ish as if it's pointing ahead to what's about to come. Peter feels like it's appropriate to quote David in the first, in the first century, even though David lived in a century that was all about a different kind of uh, world and a different perspective on just about everything. He, he says this, for he quotes David, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. And then David wrote this that Peter quotes a thousand years later, and they, they must turn from evil and they must do good and they must seek peace and pursue it. And Peter is writing this to Christians who are being mistreated specifically because of their faith. And where did Peter get this crazy idea? Don't return, you know, evil for evil, but return good for evil and, you know, respond to evil with a blessing. Where did he get this? He got it from Jesus. He got it from watching Jesus. And he was there that day that Jesus made this famous statement that most of us have heard a thousand times and can finish the sentence for Jesus. When Jesus stood and and said, you have heard it said that you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, and then Jesus turns everything completely upside down. You have heard it said, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where did you hear hate your enemy? Well, essentially, that was the old covenant. That was the world David lived in. And Jesus says, but I've come to turn all of that upside down. You do not return evil for evil. Refusing to respond in like kind. This is so powerful. Refusing to respond in like kind. If you're a Christian, refusing to respond in like kind might be the most Christ-like or I could say incarnational thing that you ever do. Refusing to respond in like kind might be the most Christ-like or to use a big theological term, the most incarnational thing you ever do do as a christian so in closing three questions two of these are for everybody and one of these is specifically for those of you who would say that you're a christian then we'll wrap this up first question is this do i really want to be even with someone i don't even like no you don't right to get even with someone you don't like is to be like someone you don't like do you want to be like someone you don't like no then why would you do what they do you want to be like the person you don't like? No. Well, then why would you act like the person you don't like? I don't think you're going to like that. Even is easy, right? Wouldn't it be better instead of being even to be ahead? And do you know how you pull ahead? You pull ahead by refusing to get even. Second question. This is a big one. What story do you want to tell? You know, going back to the life of David, there he is sitting on his mule, and perhaps he can see the smoke from the campfires where they're shearing sheep. I mean, he's a few hundred yards away from a different kind of story, and Abigail stops him and speaks to his future, and she says, do you really want this on your conscience? Is this really the story you want to tell? How did you become king? Well, I went around slaughtering innocent people to finally everybody was so scared of me. They made me king. Oh, that's the story. Is that really the story you want to tell? This is the question we should all ask. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a religious person. You should ask this question at every juncture because every event in your life just becomes a part of the story of your life. Every season of life, it just becomes a part of your life. It's just a story that you're gonna tell. Everything becomes a story that we tell. What story, as you think about how you're being mistreated or what's being done to you or being said about you, what story do you wanna tell when this is nothing other than a story that you tell? Do you really want your story to be, and I got even? I became just like the people I didn't even like. Okay, that's predictable, but it's so unremarkable. And then here's the third question, and everybody can play, but if you're a Christian, okay, we don't really get options on this. If we're Christ followers, this this is basic, this is 101. This is Jesus 101. This is, I've decided to follow Jesus. This is part of the deal. What would it look like? What would it look like for you or for me to return good for evil? When you think about him, you think about her, you think about them. When you think about your ex, when you think about an ex employer, when you think about what your son or daughter has done, your grown son or daughter, your prodigal son or daughter, when you think about your parents, when you think about your dad, when you think about that neighbor, what? What would it look like in that specific incident, in that specific context, in that specific relationship? What would it look like to return good for evil? To use Peter's word, what would it look like for you to be a blessing to someone who's hurt you or offended you? Not just just do nothing, I'm just gonna ignore them, but to be proactive and to actually do something. To do nothing, that's mercy. Here's what you deserve, I'm not gonna give you what you deserve, that's mercy. But to actually do something they don't deserve, that's grace. And if you're a Christian, this is how our story intersects with the story of salvation. This is our best opportunity to be like our father in heaven. Again, it's how our story intersects. It's how our story intersects with the greatest story ever told. And the greatest story ever told is God returning good for evil. God giving his son for our sin. That's the gospel. And if you're a Christian, that's your story. Here's the thing, and I'm done. Generosity and compassion, that's kind of American now, isn't it? Everybody's generous. Everybody knows they need to be compassionate. And I think that's a good thing. That's a Christian thing. That's a leftover of a Christian culture that's still a part of our culture. I'm all for generosity and compassion. But that's a little that in some ways, that's expected. But this Returning good for evil, that's not expected. That takes you from predictable to remarkable. That sets you apart. And ultimately for somebody, that is the thing that will set you free. Because until you return good for evil, the person that has mistreated you controls you. And here's how you know because you're like David on his donkey, headed down into that ravine, just rehearsing all the stuff you're gonna do, all the stuff you'd like to do, all the stuff you're gonna just lay in wait and do later, all the ways that you'd like to get them back. And if you can find somebody who will listen to your sad story, you keep telling your sad story, and when they say, well, you oughta, you oughta, you oughta, you just put that on now. One day I'm gonna list, right? And the only way to get free, oftentimes, is to proactively do for someone exactly what they do not deserve for you to do just like your father in heaven. So here's what David would tell us. Here's what Abigail would tell us for sure. Don't settle for even. Even is easy. And and don't settle for predictable and don't write a predictable story. Make it remarkable. Remarkable. Because at some point, this is nothing other than a story that you tell. In other words, do precisely for others what they don't deserve. And when you do, you're like your father in heaven. Now, I realize it's so easy for me to stand up here and say this, or at least you think it is. And then I walk off, you know, and I go have lunch. And you're left going, oh, great, but you don't know my ex. You don't know my son. You don't know what I've been through. I get that. I would never get up here and say this on my own authority, ever. How dare I? How insensitive of me? And that's why I would anchor this as I would hope that you would anchor this. Again, to what your father in heaven has done for you. That's the measure. That's the standard. And to use Peter's language, that's what we have been called to do. What would it look like? What would it look like? What would it look like? in your specific circumstances, to return good for evil.